0: Good evening. I hope uh, you've been thanking the Lord for the privilege that we have to gather in this building for what is now an hour. We uh, only had a half an hour for the first three weeks, but we've had an hour for last week and now this week. And I'm just aware that there are so many other churches in this city that are not able to gather yet, and we need to be praying for them, praying that they can soon gather the people in their congregation so that they can preach the Word and praise God together. I hope you remember to do that. What's your motivation for being generous with other people? Why should you tell the truth and not tell lies? Why should you avoid any kind of sin for that matter? What motivates you to do the right thing? Sometimes we are motivated to do the right thing because we don't want to be seen doing the wrong thing. It's embarrassing. When I was a young teenager, lots of extended family were visiting, and my parents had taken them out to dinner, but I needed to stay home and work on a project for school that was due very soon. And part of that project involved me recording some music that I played on my trumpet along with some. Uh, dialogue of narrating a movie that I was making, actually, for this project. Well, the next day, my parents woke me up, and they told me how after I'd gone to bed, they returned home, and they had gathered all the relatives in the living room of our home and played the recording that I had made. I didn't know they were going to do that. You see, at one point in recording, I had repeatedly made mistakes and gotten so frustrated that I let fly with an incredibly long string of expletives. Yes, I wasn't a Christian. Not yet. Only I'd forgotten to stop the recording. And so all my relatives had heard me, (laughs) as they listened to this recording, cursing over and over and over again. All my extended family, I wanted to disappear Can you imagine how embarrassing that might have been? Sin is embarrassing. And so, oftentimes, when we sin, our first instinct with sin is to cover it up, to hide it. But sin is far worse than any kind of embarrassment that we might feel from sin being seen. All sin is sin against God, first and foremost, and He sees everything. And the consequences are far greater than just embarrassment. If we're going to fight the temptation to sin in our lives, we need more than just the fear of embarrassment, the fear of being found out. Why? Because fear just won't stop us. In fact, that time, that experience of being outed in front of all my relatives didn't stop me from cursing. It was a terribly bad habit in my life until I came to know Jesus when I was 16 years old. And God began to work in my life, and He changed what was in my mind so that He changed what came out of my mouth. We're sinners by nature, and we need to be transformed. I wasn't transformed. I didn't begin to be transformed until I was 16, and thank the Lord, He's still transforming me. Christ is the only one and His gospel is the only thing which can change us from the inside out. It gives us the true motivation for living righteous lives. In our passage this evening, we encounter a community of people radically transformed by the gospel and how God protects them from the corrupting effect of sin. What I want you to be absolutely convinced of from God's word tonight is that gospel grace makes us radically generous and rejects sin. Gospel grace makes us radically generous and it rejects sin. Over the first four chapters of Acts, we've seen the church be born on the day of Pentecost, and through the preaching of the apostles, it's growing in size and influence in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish leaders who had killed Jesus are feeling threatened. We saw that in chapter 4, and so they told the apostles to stop teaching in Jesus' name. But the apostles say, we must obey God, not man. Now, at the end of Acts 4, Luke gives us a summary description about the church's unity and radical generosity. We saw some of that at the end of chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And then here in chapter 4, we see another one of these summaries. After that summary then, he gives us a particularly good example of someone who was generous in the midst of the church… And then as we push into chapter 5, we see a negative example as well. The first point this evening is radical generosity. Radical generosity. That's one thing that gospel grace produces in the hearts of Christians. These last six verses of chapter 4 paint an amazing picture of what life was like in the church. Verse 32 gives us the overall picture Look there with me in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. One heart and soul. You know, you can't describe Christian unity with any fewer words, I think. The Holy Spirit had bound them together under the lordship of Jesus, And we see in the second half of this verse that it tells us a specific way that their unity was being demonstrated. It was in their view of money and possessions that had been radically changed. Now, we're going to come back to this verse in just a minute to think through exactly what had changed and why it had changed. Because we have to ask, what was the engine of change? Yes, of course, it was the Holy Spirit. We know that. But what caused change? The Holy Spirit? What did the Holy Spirit drive home in their hearts that caused them to live radically different than they were living just weeks before when they hadn't bowed the knee to Jesus? Verse 33 then tells us what was the engine. It was the preaching of the gospel. It was the preaching of the gospel. Verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This verse is shorthand for saying they kept preaching the gospel. Of course, the gospel's not fully explained in this one verse, but that's what it means when it says they preached the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, that it doesn't say that with great power the apostles were urging the Christians to give all their money to the church. Or it doesn't say the apostles were telling the church to give their money to the poor. It was happening anyway, but it was the result of the preaching of the good news of the risen Lord Jesus. When the gospel is proclaimed and believed, grace, grace is the result. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong for pastors to preach about giving. But it changes how they preach about giving. It changes how they preach about giving. Now, we're going to come back again to this as well. But for now, we press on because in verses 34 and 35, we see one notable, specific way that grace-driven generosity was happening among them. And then in verses 36 and 37, Luke gives us a name. He gives us the name of one notable example of a generous person who was in their midst. Verse 34 and 35 reveal that one specific way that generosity was being expressed was that people who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale, and as it says at the beginning of verse 35, laid it at the apostles' feet. They turned it over to them. And then the apostles distributed it to those who had need. Of course, this is the beginning of some kind of benevolence fund in the church, We already know that people in the church were hosting one another in their homes for meals. We read that back in Acts chapter 2. But those who were rich in property saw the needs of their fellow Christians, and they sold property so that they could help them. It's amazing. And then we have this wonderful example, this example of Joseph, who is given the nickname Barnabas. By the apostles, which means son of encouragement. Of course, here in this land where we live, uh, Arabs have in their name Ben, Ben Rashid al Maktum, for example, son of Rashid. Bar is the same thing in Hebrew. Bar Nabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas sold a field that he had and he gave the money to the apostles. He laid it at their feet. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about Barnabas as. The true story of Acts unfolds, and so I'm going to keep referring to him as Barnabas throughout this sermon, but this is radical generosity motivated by gospel grace, and it's happening regularly in the life of the church. People are, it's just welling up in people, and the biggest question that we have to answer here is, what is it about the gospel? that radically changes the way new Christians would view their possessions and each other in the church. Something changed because they weren't living like this weeks before. Why would they liquidate expensive pieces of property to help needy people who they probably wouldn't have had as friends prior to joining up with the apostles in the church and before they had become followers of Christ? Why is that? It wasn't because the apostles were forcing them or making them feel guilty if they didn't do it. No, grace was upon them. They were doing this out of the overflow of grace in their hearts. The gospel message is that although some people are rich and some are poor with regard to possessions, everyone is spiritually needy. Everyone. You may have property in multiple countries. You may have a business that's making money hand over fist. You may own precious jewels or a room full of gold ingots. But none of your wealth will help you on the day of judgment. You are a sinner. What will you do when you stand before Him? Well, the message of the apostles was that Jesus of Nazareth had come into the world, sent by the Father. He went to the cross. He died there and was buried. But God raised Him from the dead. And He has been declared the ruler of the heavens and the earth and the judge of all mankind. Now, every single one of us has sinned against God and people throughout our lives. And on that day of judgment, wealth... Won't help you or I. It will not help us. We will stand innocence naked before Him. And what will we say? We won't be able to bargain or buy or barter our way out of the judgment that our sins deserve. But the gospel message says that if we repent of our sin and we believe in this Jesus, This gracious Savior, something that doesn't cost any money to do, His death on the cross pays the penalty that our wealth can't even begin to repay. He offers the spiritually needy like us grace, unearned favor. You see, Jesus was rich in glory, but He took on the lowly form of a man to come near us and die for us who were spiritually needy. So that we might become spiritually rich. That's what he did. That was the message that had transformed them. And this Jesus, he distributes his grace to each as any have need. Just like these new Christians were distributing their wealth to any who had need. When you trust in a Savior like that, your view of yourself changes. You know that you're needy in the most desperate way, no matter how rich or poor you are. All are equally needy. No one comes to Jesus with anything to their credit. Pastors and prostitutes. Do-gooders and gangsters. Everyone is needy before God. And God's grace in Christ meets that need. Is that how you view yourself? As spiritually needy before God? Only Christ can meet that need, my friend. Oh, run to Him. He offers grace. Turn away from your sin. Trust in Him. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter how long you've followed Christ. Do you realize that there isn't a day that goes by that you're not in need of the grace of Christ? just as much as you needed on the first day that you repented and trusted in Him? We all need grace every day. On our best days, you and I need what only Christ offers, grace. But how about our possessions? The grace of Christ for the spiritually needy would change how these new Christians viewed one another. But how did it change their view of their possessions? Are they unimportant now? Verse 32 says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. But then if you look down in verse 34, it says, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. Or verse 37 says that Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him. Believing the gospel doesn't mean that you don't own things anymore. (laughs) But why would the possessions that they owned cause them to not say that they belong to themselves necessarily? You see, the gospel of grace taught them that all of their possessions were owned by the Lord Jesus. Not them, not the church, but Jesus And that they were merely stewards of it until his return. He's the Lord of all the heavens and the earth. It's all his. There's not one piece of property, not one ounce of gold, or single precious jewel on the earth or in your possession that isn't his. And that's true for your money and my money, your possessions and my possessions. They are his. We're just stewards, we're caretakers. Randy Alcorn, in his little book called The Treasure Principle, lists what he calls six treasure principle keys. It's a book about wealth and how we should view it. What is his first key? God owns everything. I'm just his money manager. God owns everything. I'm just his money manager. God gives us charge of possessions for his purposes and his goals, which include our needs, of course, but also the needs of our neighbors. If you're a Christian, he's the master of the house, and you and I are his beloved servants. We get to live here and we get to enjoy the master's wealth, but we're held accountable for how we handle it. How are you handling God's property? Maybe it would be a good idea to go home tonight and walk through your apartment or your villa and look around and tell the Lord, maybe out loud, thank you for blessing me with these things, Lord. They are yours. Help me use them for your purposes. Maybe you need to get online and look at your bank balance and say to the Lord, this is all your money, Lord. Am I using it well? Teach me, Lord, to be a good steward of what You've given me. Lord, are there ways I need to share this with others? You've given me the kingdom of heaven, a great inheritance. My future is wealthy and secure beyond belief. How should I live right now with possessions? That's the big picture of how the gospel changes our view of ourselves and our neighbors and our possessions. That's why these people were so generous. They actually believed these things. Think about your motives for giving to others, whether it's just your generosity one to another or in giving to the church. If you're giving so that God doesn't get mad at you, you don't fully understand the gospel of God's gracious love. If you're giving because you think that God will love you more and bless you more now, then you don't fully understand the gospel truth that God's given you the kingdom of heaven and an eternal inheritance. If you're helping others because you think it improves how God views you, you don't understand how needy you really are. You can't give away God's stuff in order to make Him think highly of you. The Father has given us the greatest gift, which is His Son, and He's preparing a place in the new heavens and the new earth for us to experience eternal provision and blessing. People who worship the greatest giver in the universe become radically generous givers motivated by gospel grace. You know, I'm I'm struck as I read this account by the gracious way in which the apostles viewed and thought of Barnabas here. Whether it was right here in this moment when he brought that money after selling that property and laid it at their feet that they named him Barnabas, I don't know, maybe it was a little bit later. But regardless, they gave him a nickname based on the ways that God was at work. in him. Son of encouragement. And that's what they called him. That's what Luke calls him for the rest of his account in Acts. How encouraging is that to identify people by the ways that you see God's grace at work in them? Here are the apostles naming people based on the evidences of grace in them. Think about the people in this room that you know in this church What evidences of grace do you see in them? Is that how you think of them? Is that what your mind turns to when you see their name in the directory or when they call you up? Have you told them that? You know, I think there may be many of you that we should call Barnabas, actually, (laughs) in this church. Your gift is encouraging, so many of you and you make us want to grow, and you make us want to be more like Jesus. Keep it up. Keep it up. You know, if Barnabas was the example that we should follow showing how the grace of the gospel produces radical generosity, Ananias and Sapphira were the examples to avoid. And that's the second point this evening, rejection of sin, rejection of sin. We see that in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Immediately, Luke begins to recount how Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with the intention of laying it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas, but with one exception. Look at verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, Peter abruptly confronted Ananias with his sin. It must have been that God gave Peter some miraculous knowledge in order to do that. And when Peter finished confronting him, Ananias died right there in front of everyone. And the young men who were in the room stood up, wrapped his body up, and took him out and buried him. Stunning. Shocking. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira arrived where her husband had brought the money to the apostles, and Peter confronted her as well, testing her by asking her how much they'd sold the property for. Not just the amount that they were giving, but how much had they sold the property for because that's what Ananias had said. She confirmed the lie. Immediately she fell down dead in front of everyone, and she was carried out and buried as well. The result in the community, look at verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Why did this happen? What was God doing when He struck down Ananias and Sapphira? Is it because they didn't give all the money? That's not the reason that the Lord struck them down. Giving only a portion of the money isn't the sin that Peter identifies when he confronts Ananias. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He lied. He lied about it. That was their sin. And when they presented the money to the apostles, they made it seem as if they were giving everything they earned from the sale, but that wasn't true. The property and the money was theirs to decide what to do with. They could have just given the amount that they laid at the feet of the apostles and not lied about it, and everything would have been okay. Peter's other questions to Ananias make that clear. He says, did it not remain your own? Peter asked him in one of those four questions, and he also said, was it not at your disposal? You see, it was in Ananias and Sapphira's hands. They were the stewards of it. They could decide what to do based on their needs in life. We all know that lying is sin. Of course, it's one of the Ten Commandments that God gave Israel not to give false witness. That's lying. That's lying. We're commanded by God not to lie, of course, because we're made in God's image, made to represent Him, and God never lies. He only speaks truth. You see, in the gospel, He's told us the most important truth, life-saving truth. He's told us and reminded us that He's holy and loving and that we've sinned against Him and we deserve His wrath but that He, in His lavish mercy, has sent Christ into the world to save us sinners. God only tells the truth. Satan only lies. Ananias and Sapphira lied for a reason, though, didn't they? It wasn't just for no reason. Given the example of Barnabas and the radical generosity that was described in those verses up at the end of chapter 4, it seems clear. They wanted to be seen as more generous than they really were. They wanted to impress the apostles at least, if not everyone else around them. Maybe they'd get a special nickname too, just from the apostles. And we're tempted just like they were tempted. Sometimes we too give in to the temptation to lie about ourselves or act in ways in order to make ourselves look better than we really are, don't we? We're trying to gain some kind of extra status in a relationship or maybe even in the church, maybe in the workplace or with friends, new acquaintances. We sin when we value seeming more righteous than we really are, seeming like we're more godly than our neighbor, seeming like we're better. But believing the gospel enables us to live differently. The gospel undermines any motivation for lying, you see. It does that because the gospel says that God has welcomed sinners into His family by sheer grace none of us earned our way in. The gospel changes everything because it says that if God has received us and loved us despite our sin, then there's no need to impress our neighbor or the people that we think are really important. Perhaps like church leaders. God loves us. God has accepted us, and that's what matters. He knows about all all our sin. He knows about our sin that we don't even know about, (laughs) and He loves us. He's loved us in Christ. The person who's farther along in Christian maturity and fighting sin is not loved more than the person who just came to Christ yesterday and whose life is an obvious tangle of sinful patterns and habits. He doesn't love them more He doesn't love me more than He loves you just because I'm the pastor. There's no need for self-advancement in the kingdom of God. There's no room for trying to look better in the church of God. Ananias and Sapphira either didn't really understand the gospel or had forgotten the gospel and given in to the temptation of Satan. Maybe they never really trusted in Christ. We don't really know. Luke doesn't really tell us, but Satan filled their hearts with temptation to sin, and they gave in. Satan had been doing that since he slithered into the Garden of Eden filling people's hearts with the temptation to sin. And He's still doing it today. He's stalking us, in fact. If you're following Jesus, you're a target. Now, there are ways that you and I tend to shade the truth in order to seem like we're more godly than one another, aren't there? Is there anyone here that you feel some sense of spiritual competition with? That's Satan tempting you. Are you ever trying to impress anyone in the church? You don't need to do that, brothers and sisters. You don't need to do that. Christ loved you when He went to the cross. Spiritual competition and trying to advance ourselves One over another threatens the unity that the gospel has created in our midst. Lying and untruthfulness endangers the church. It's Satan's plan for us. We see evidence here in this passage that Satan has different ways of attacking God's people. In chapter 4, we saw the religious leaders begin to attack the church, and it's going to continue as we continue in Acts But here we see Satan attacking the church from inside. And it was the same for Jesus too, of course, right? There were religious authorities who eventually crucified Him, but there was also Judas, an apostle, chosen by Jesus Himself. Do you realize that when you and I fight sin in our individual lives, we're also working to protect The church body that we're a part of, we're connected to one another. Remember what Paul wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 12, verse 3 and 4 and 5, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. If only Ananias and Sapphira were thinking of themselves with sober judgment and giving praise to God for the measure of grace and faith that had been given to Barnabas and asking God to fill them with the same amount of faith. Oh, if only we would do the same. The local church is the body of Christ, and to corrupt the church is to attack Christ. We see that in the passage as well. Peter doesn't point out how they lied to the apostles and therefore the church, which they clearly did. He points out that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And he makes it clear that the third person of the Trinity is fully God. Did you see that? Verse 4. You have not lied to man, but to God. And that's why I I would encourage you not to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, but refer to the Holy Spirit as He. The Holy Spirit is a person, the person of the Trinity. If you lie, you're lying to Him, not it. (laughs) In these first chapters of Acts, God is doing an extraordinary thing in the life of the church. The church is born on the day of Pentecost. The church leaders are emerging, and these new believers in Christ are learning how to live according to the truth of the gospel. The only thing that they have as a template for how to live is Jesus' teaching taught by the apostles and a new Spirit-inspired understanding of the Old Testament And with Ananias and Sapphira's sudden deaths, the Lord is protecting His young church from internal corruption. He's dramatically preventing sin from spreading. What a mercy of God at this time in the life of the church. This isn't how God normally protects His church from the sin of dishonesty and self-promotion. I hope you know that. although He certainly could do this any time He wanted, and He would be completely justified. Any time we sin, the Lord could take our life. That's up to Him. He numbers our days. But as the church spread and the apostles wrote the rest of the New Testament, they laid out, inspired by the Spirit, a process for keeping the church pure from serious public sin. And when one of us becomes trapped in serious and public sin, the church acts to carry out what we call discipline. Now, you should think of discipline like you think of discipline for your children. The goal is not shame. The goal is to lovingly correct and protect. That's the goal of discipline. Praise God if discipline works. That's what we want to see. If not… If it doesn't work when we go to a brother or sister and we say, brother or sister, there's obvious sin in your life and I want to call your attention to it. It leads to death. Oh, turn away from it. If the person doesn't turn away from sin, usually slowly the process progresses until if that person refuses to repent of serious public sin, the church will at some point in time need to effectively say, we can't affirm your profession of faith until you repent. You cannot consider yourself a covenanting member of God's body, the church. And that's grievous. But even still, the purpose is to bring them back into the fold of the church, for them to rediscover grace, the goal of all church discipline is repentance and restoration. And by God's grace, in three and a half years, our church has experienced very little need for those final steps of church discipline. By God's grace, the ordinary ministry of church members' involvement in one another's lives is bringing about necessary correction and rebuke. Praise God for that. Let's pray it continues. Now, while I think it's rare that God intervenes to purify His church in such a dramatic way, we should be careful to understand that Ananias and Sapphira's deaths are a sign that one day God will purify finally His church and judge the whole world, and the consequences of denying Christ and His gospel will be far worse than mere physical death on that day. Not only did the Lord dramatically remove this sin of lying and self-advancement from the church on that day, but He changed the hearts of those in the church, both inside and outside. Twice in these verses, these, last, these first 11 verses of chapter 5, it says that great fear came upon all, or great fear came upon the whole church. For those outside, the fear would have been somewhat different, of course. For those without faith and trust in the Lord, without an experience of God's grace, their fear would have been closer to terror, and appropriately so. if we were to read on into uh, chapter 5, we'd see just in verse 13 that many people began to avoid the church, seemingly because of fear. But for those inside the church, God's miraculous purging of this sin brought great fear as well. But when it comes to the fear of God, faith and trust is transforming. Nonbelievers who catch some glimpse of the power and holiness of God are struck with fear, but those who believed the gospel know and understand God's great mercy. They know Him as Father, not simply as judge. That's how we know Him, brothers and sisters. Think of it this way. After Adam and Eve had sinned, what did they do? They fled the presence of the Lord. They hid in fear, right? But after the Lord had lovingly made garments of skin to cover their nakedness, they would not have fled from Him. And their fear and terror would have been transformed into a fear that drew them to God rather than drove them from God. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he defines the Christian's fear of God like this reverent submission that leads to joyful obedience. Reverent submission that leads to joyful obedience. Having a proper fear of the Lord leads us to joyfully obey the God who's lavished his holy and pure love on us in Christ. That was the result in the church. More reverent submission leading to more joyful obedience. I bet giving went up in the church after this. Brothers and sisters, the gospel changes everything. Because Christ has died for sinners, we don't need to try to be more holy than our neighbor. Nor do we need to pretend to be more godly than we are. God is at work in us. Because God has been infinitely generous with us in our spiritual neediness and has promised us a great inheritance greater than all the possessions of this world, we're freed to be radically generous. And because the Lord protects His bride, the church, from deadly, deceptive sin, our fear of Him grows, and so we fall on our faces in worship of Him, and we rise to joyful obedience. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the gospel which has transformed us. It's transformed our view of ourselves, of our neighbors, of our possessions, and of what it means and the reasons why we're to obey You. We praise You for the good news of Jesus. We pray that it would continue to work in us, changing us from one degree of glory to the next. In Christ's name, amen.